Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Well, certainly we've been given a great day to celebrate Easter. The weather is just magnificent. I hope your spirits are as lifted as the weather is. But, uh, you know, you also know that today is April the 15th. And uh, just by coincidence, we're brought face to face on one glorious day with what many people call the two inevitabilities of life. <laughs> yeah, you know what they are, don't you? Now, there may be a few that are saying, what, what are those? But it's death and taxes, if you want to know what those are, that uh, we're feeling today. I know that uh, we would like to both ignore those. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, whether some of you are just waking up to the fact that today is tax day or burying that, uh, today, April the 15th, we call it a day of infamy, don't we? means that today we have to pay up for Uncle Sam. It's one of those inevitable things that each of us have to face. You know, we have to also face the inevitability of death. That's something that for each of us, I'm sure we would also like to bury as well. In fact, in some ways, our culture has allowed us to escape some of the raw terror of death because of all the mechanisms that we have today. We don't get to feel the sting of death like primitive cultures do or like past American cultures have. But nonetheless, death is a universal we all have to face. It has a universal statistic, doesn't it? That's 100%. Each of us have to die. And uh, whether that's this year or next year, around us all the time, from week to week or maybe from year to year, something will occur, whether a friend will die expectantly or whether there'll be a tragedy and a family member or someone else will die that catches us by surprise. And then once again, we are reminded that death has a deadline. And that deadline is set for us as well, just as sure as April 15th is for taxes. Well, I wish that on this beautiful, glorious, sunny day that I had a solution for taxes. But I don't. But I am excited to stand here with all of you, and I know most of you are here like me, to celebrate the solution to death. And that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the effect that the resurrection has on death, and I hope I can help you feel some of that here this morning, but the effect that the resurrection has on death is much like when it's April 15th and you find out you have a refund coming. It's a cause, isn't it, for widespread celebration. And certainly that's what we want to do today is to celebrate. Now I know that there are people today who are skeptical that a man lived and died and unlike any man or woman who has ever lived, that this one man demonstrated a supernatural ability to overcome death. You know, the idea of the resurrection is to some nothing more than a primitive myth for simplistic and naive minds. It's not a hope for them, it's a fairy tale. It's a fictitious escape from the hard reality of life and of death. So this morning as we start to celebrate in the Word, the celebration of the resurrection, what I would like to do for you is to expose you to four evidences that I believe give 
more than just blind faith to the fact of the resurrection. They're on your outlines. You might just fill them in as we move through those. But the first is this. The resurrection is hinted at in the heart of every man. Now, how can I say that? Well, I can say that because the Bible says that. And it says so in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So you might take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not an easy book to find, by the way, as you turn there. Just look for the Psalms and then move forward through the Proverbs and you'll run across this great book of wisdom by Solomon called Ecclesiastes. And it's a different kind of book. If any of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not a book that minces words. It speaks plainly and boldly to the hard realities of life. And it minces no words in doing so. But in chapter 3, Solomon says this. He says, God has made everything appropriate in its time. Now you might just stop on that word time and look above to the verses that come, verses 1 through 10 above there. And uh, for some of you who are not familiar with the Bible, but you're familiar with 60 songs, you'll find the birds tune, turn, 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 to every season, you know, turn, 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 a time to be born, a time to die, time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to reap and a time to sow. All those things are taken right out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. God has made everything appropriate in its time. And what Solomon is saying is, is that man is bounded by time. He cannot escape the watch, the clock, the calendar. He can't escape his past, nor can he escape the fact that one day he will stand in the future. But in doing so, he can't move between those. He's bounded by time. And yet, having made that very scientific statement that you and I have no problems with accepting because we live in time and we can feel its effects, he then goes on and makes another statement. It's the second line, verse 11. He says, God has also set or placed eternity in the heart of man. Well, that's interesting, because though we are bounded by time, we carry within ourselves, Solomon says, this sense of timelessness. And I think we all feel that. Certainly we must, or we wouldn't be here today. But here's one of the reasons that man has always had difficulty accepting his mortality, his temporalness. We all know that we're going to die. We all know that one day that they will put us away as scientists say, this cosmic speck of dust that's going to be put away and returned to the dust. We know that. We see that. And yet, we're not content with that. We might even want to be content with that. We might think of ourselves in a very agnostic sense as that's all we are. But yet, we can't put away this sense deep within our innermost being that we are more than just flesh and blood bound by time. And though we can't fully explain it, the inexplicable remains within us. And that is that we have this sense of our timelessness, the fact that we are related somehow to eternity. I believe the reason for that is because of what Solomon says here in verse 11. God has planted the seed of eternity within our hearts. A number of years ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I took a few days off and went through the Smithsonian Museums. I was with a friend and 
we went through uh, the Museum of Natural History and the Museum of Science and those kind of things. You know, the, the uh, Smithsonian is broken into certain buildings for certain categories. Then there's the Museum of History. And as you move through the Museum of History, displayed before you are all these cultures of every age laid out before you, different artifacts from those cultures and the generations and how those cultures depicted themselves from the remains that we have, the rise and fall of civilizations. And as you move through those varied accounts of cultures all over our world, you can't help but be impressed by the great variety that you see among them. And yet, interestingly enough, there is a common thread that kind of weaves through the garment of all those cultures and then pulls them together as you walk out the doors. And that common thread is the sense that every culture in every age has had that they are eternal in nature. The Polynesians constructed their great statues in honor of the gods that they felt that they would someday live with after death. The ancient Indians had their happy hunting grounds. The powerful Egyptians consumed their time with mummies and pyramids, all of which were because they reasoned that there would be an afterlife. Even in our modern day, with some of the New Age philosophies that are circulating uh, among us today, as modern as it's supposed to be, it still, still seeks to expand man past the grave. Why? Because we all feel, as any culture has felt, in any age, at any time, that somehow we are more than mere mortal. We have this innate sense within us of our immortality. And could it be that an unseen God is the one who has placed that urge within us, an urge so basic to our humanity that even the vilest skeptic the severest critic, the atheist, even though he proclaims that we are nothing more than time and chance plus matter passing through for a finite period of time, never to be explored again, never to be understood with no purpose or ultimate meaning, even as he utters those words, the counsel of his heart speaks in opposition and declares him to be more than that. You know, the only link between death, which we know, and an afterlife, which we don't know, is resurrection. Without that connection, there is no purpose or meaning to man. So the resurrection is hinted at the heart, in the heart of every man. Secondly, the resurrection is communicated to us by the drama of creation. You remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 19? He said, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Silently, yes. Without speech, yes. But speaking nonetheless. In fact, the psalmist goes on to say, and he says, day to day, God's creation pours forth speech. You know, we only communicate with words 7% of what we say. You know how we communicate the rest of what we say? It's non-verbally. It's what we see in one another and how we act and the look on our face and those kind of things. Well, creation has a look on its face. And it has a particular look right now at this season of the year. And what is it saying to us? Well, if we could all just walk outside these doors of this sanctuary, we would see like a great choir, the physical world, joining together in chorusing one 
singular truth. And that's the resurrection. It's impossible to miss. Even if you were a teenage mutant ninja turtle, you couldn't miss this. Because all society is saying it at one time. You know, about four years ago, I had the duty, I guess you could call it, of planting some plants around my house. And one of the plants I planted was down in the front. It was a small, now it's a fairly large, red leaf maple. And every year I watch this maple, and it stands there like a silent actor acting out spiritual realities. I mean, right now it's in its rebirth, but it won't be long until it'll be fully flowered and green and lush, and it'll demonstrate a certain strength that all of us have in a season of life. When fall comes, it'll turn red and glorious in this midlife, and then by the end, by December, it will have dropped all its glory. It will be ashen and gray. And to the kind of the uh, naive mind just looking at it, on the surface, it'll appear dead, ashen, lifeless. And you would expect it to stay there. Except this actor acts out something for us. And about this time of year, it begins to speak again. And it speaks of resurrection by those small buds now that are all over it. You see, nature declares that. Every part of nature rises again at this time of year and gives the speech of resurrection to us. You know, Jesus compared His resurrection to a seed. And anyone that looks at a seed or holds a seed in the palm of their hand sees something that has no appearance of power no appearance of life. In fact, you can place that seed, as the Egyptians did, in, in certain containers, and they can remain in that dormancy for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. But concluding that that seed is worthless and throwing it out and burying it, in a season, it will declare its hidden power. It will declare resurrection. How is that? It's the same with ourselves. Even you and I play out that, and we play it out in a, in, in a drama in cooperation with nature around us. When do you get up? Most of us, few of us are not like this, but most of us get up with the rising of the sun. It's as if we're trained to do that. As it sheds its new light on our day, we ourselves rise, and we go through the day with great vigor in the strength of its light. But as the day begins to ebb towards the end of the day, our vision becomes constricted. And in time, our bodies and our minds grow tired. And then we settle into sleep with the appearance of lifelessness. Only to be cued the next morning by nature. It's time to rise up. And we rise up again. You see, the sun, seeds, the seasons... Nature is constantly communicating with us non-verbally and dramatizing for us these spiritual realities, not the least of which is the resurrection. How sad it is in a technological age that we miss the concert that is forever playing around us. Well, there's a third evidence for the resurrection and it's argued for in the conversion of what I call sincere skeptics. You know, there are two types of skeptics. There's the passive skeptic, the passive doubter who just grabs things 
in a very superficial way from his society in order to excuse himself from real investigation. Students often are like that. They go to the university and because of a professor who has PhD at the end of his name, whatever he throws out becomes truth with very little, if any, investigation. Oftentimes we can look at our media and our media can throw things out as if they're truth with little or no investigation or statistics or graphs. And we can say, that's what our world believes. Little understanding that so much of that has been manipulated and tainted by the container itself. Then there are more radical doubters. Those in history who take a look at something that is so cataclysmic as a resurrection that one could could he rise from the dead who have gone beyond that and have actually begun to look at the evidence? Have you? Have you ever really examined the evidence? Even as a Christian, taken a look at the immense wealth of information that has been spread out before you that critics have gone over with a fine-tooth comb. Well, Frank Morrison was one of those. He was brought up in England in an atheistic home with an environment that was very naturalistic. He was taught that religion was nothing more than mythology. Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection was nothing more than a fairy tale. And later, as a British lawyer, in a skeptical age in which he lived, he decided to research and then write the life of Jesus from this naturalistic persuasion. In fact, he intended to entitle his book, Jesus, the Last Phase. And he would end it with this heroic, effort by Jesus Christ to die on the cross knowing that life was nothing more than meaninglessness. But he would live like a hero anyway. Well, that book was never written by Frank Morrison. In fact, as he went and did his research, he, what he uncovered not only changed his naturalistic perspective, but his life as well. He became a believer in Jesus Christ through the evidence that he found for the resurrection. And rather than writing Jesus the last phase, he wrote the book instead that became a bestseller all over the world, Who Moved the Stone? And it was an argument and an apology to other sincere skeptics to come and taste the information for themselves. Because it's that certain. It was a similar path that Lou Wallace took, that skeptic of Christianity who in his research found his life also ending in faith and then that faith bore fruit in the book, Ben-Hur. It was others as well. There were followers of Alexander Pope who had been challenged by him to put a dagger in the heart of Christianity. Alexander Pope was the great literary genius. Uh, he was a humanist. He was a vicious critic of Christianity. Uh, when he thought of man, he put man in this couplet. He said, man is, like a fixed, is fixed like a plant on his particular spot to draw nutrition, propagate, and rot. That was his view of man. And he had a great following who looked at man just that way. Not the least of which were two men, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton. And they were determined as admirers and followers of Pope's philosophy of life to assault the very heart of Christianity, which they determined revolved around two events. The conversion of Saul into the Apostle Paul and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each took one of those, and they spent several years doing research in order to refute the Christian faith. And when they came back together, they found themselves both a little sheepish to declare what they had found. Littleton, through his conversion to Christianity, 
had found that Saul truly did convert to Paul, that there was evidence for that to the seeking skeptic. And West found, as he evaluated the life and death of Jesus Christ, that there was overwhelming evidence for his resurrection. Both embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. Both went on to write the book, Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on the flyleaf of that book, they pen the words appropriately from the book of Ecclesiastes this, Blame not before thou hast examined the truth. You see, sincere skeptics will be motivated to really examine the documentation that's there. And perhaps if you are here and you are just a skeptic, or if the resurrection of Jesus Christ has not gripped your heart to the place that it's changed your life, then I want to challenge you here this morning on this great Easter morning. Don't let life pass you by. The resurrection was not an intellectual truth to be contemplated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not something to just kind of conclude on passively. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that you will be accountable one day, that life is more than just today, that there is an eternity waiting for you, and you, too, will be raised from the dead. Sincere skeptics and their conversion is an evidence to you, an offer to anyone who struggles with this to come and taste this truth for themselves. Then there is the fact of the resurrection being defended by the application of logic. You know, some of you saw this week the U.S. News and World Report cover story on Jesus Christ, and there were a number of articles about His life, death, burial, and resurrection. I thought it was interesting, though they would not document or endorse the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that as they wrestle with it and as, quote, the new theologians poured over the documentation that was there, that the article ended with even... U.S. News and World Report saying there had to be something of a magnitude of which is greater than anything that we could have thought for there to have set in motion a movement like this. Not a movement around a good teacher. You know, if you believe Jesus Christ like you believe Mohammed, then you were believing His teachings as teachings for new life. But then once he died, you could go on believing that sincerely because he was just trying to teach you in faith in God and new life. Mohammed taught that. Confucius taught you a new way of life by rules and regulations. And when he died, you either could believe those or not. But Jesus Christ did not teach good moral principles. Jesus Christ's whole reputation did not hang on just a, a, a passive or a guesswork faith at God. Jesus Christ came and He based His whole philosophy of life that He offers to us based on the fact that He was God and that He would rise from the dead. There was nothing else except that. That was the center of the center of Christianity. And if you were a follower in Him, you wouldn't be believing in just His teachings. He asked you to embrace Himself as the Lord of life. And had He not risen from the dead by sheer logic, would you have followed Him? Think about it. All of Christianity rested on that point. That's why the great Princeton historian Philip Schaff said, 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the existence of the Christian church are so tied together that they must stand or fall together. It was not just good teaching. Others, of course, would say that the resurrection is a fraud. And I have seen so many students, for instance, and so many lay people be swept away with the illogical comment that the apostles simply decided, I mean, let's putting aside that they stole the body, but just simply decided Jesus was a good guy and we need to keep the movement going. So let's just go out and perpetuate the myth that he was going to rise from the dead. Put yourself in their place. Put yourself after his crucifixion. Would you go out and perpetuate the myth when everything he had told you was based on that being the truth? Well, maybe that's who you are here today. But if so, let me give you this eloquent quote by a man of the past, Principal Hill, when he addressed those who would think on a superficial glance that it's plausible for 12 men to go out into the whole world to perpetuate something that they knew was not true. He said, and I quote, To believe this, you must suppose that 12 men of mean, me, 12 men of mean birth with no education, living in that humble station of life which placed ambitious views out of their reach and far from their thoughts, formed the noblest scheme ever entered into in the mind of man, that they adopted the most daring means of executing that scheme and conducted it with such address as to conceal its fraudulent nature under the semblance of simplicity and virtue. You must suppose that men guilty of blasphemy and falsehood united in an attempt, the best contrived in history, which has in fact proved the most successful for making this world we live in virtuous. You must suppose that they formed this singular enterprise without seeking any advantage to themselves, with a certain expectation of scorn and persecution ahead of them, and that although conscious of one another's villainy, none of them ever thought of providing for his own security by disclosing the fraud, but that amidst their own suffering, the most grievous flesh and blood can suffer. They persevered in their conspiracy unto their death, so as, now listen, to trick this world we live in into piety and honesty and benevolence. Truly, Principal Hill says, those who can swallow such suppositions as these have no right to object in miracles. And I would say a hearty amen to that. No one dies for what he knows to be untrue. You can die for a principle, you can die for a truth, but you cannot die for a liar. At least not 12 men. Only the resurrection makes sense of what occurred in the first century. And I know U.S. News and World reports all these new theologians trying to figure that out some other way of explaining it. But the Bible as a historical analysis stands firm that there was no other way for Jesus Christ to do what He did other than to rise from the dead and do what no man ever did. It was the greatest comeback in history is what it was. You know, I love comebacks and we're going to look at that in Luke chapter 24. You might turn there, and as you're doing, let me tell you a story of a comeback. Because comebacks kind of help lift you above the mundane, the everyday. It tells you that more is possible than what you think. 
And a number of years ago, uh, in this service, I shared with you the story of a young man by the name of Michael Parker. Now, those of you who are new and have come within the last five years won't know this, but I told about a young man from my hometown. When I was home visiting, I picked up an article about him. And he was a football star from my high school that I went to when I grew up in Ruston. And during the middle of this season that he was playing in back in 1986, Michael Parker was diagnosed as having a rare form of bone cancer in his leg. And so he had to drop off the team and he was sent down to MD Anderson's hospital in Houston, the research hospital, where he began to go undergo a lengthy series of tests and then ultimately chemotherapy. While he was there, his team went on to win uh, a spot in the playoffs and then ultimately went all the way to the state championship game in the Superdome in New Orleans. And while they were there, even though he was undergoing radiation treatments, he asked if he could come and be with the team on this special night, the night of the state championship game. And the team, after he arrived, the team went out and played a miserable first half. They got behind by three touchdowns. They walked into the locker room. And as I used this illustration a number of years ago, the coach just said nothing. There was just silence in this locker room. Those young men were sullen. They were being beaten badly. And they're over in the corner on crutches, now shriveled and sunken because of all this chemotherapy. Just a few months before, his teammates had seen him as a 200-pound linebacker, and now he weighed only 130 pounds, was Michael Parker. And so as they were about to leave to go out for the second half, this coach made a very stunning and motivational message in just one sentence. He looked at all his players and looked at Michael, and he said, Men, after the second half is over, I want Michael to go out on the field and receive our state championship trophy. Well, the second half proved to be a stunning comeback. And the reason I read the article is because there at midfield on the Superdome floor with crutches was Michael Parker holding this state championship trophies, the state championship trophy that his teammates had won for him. I thought that was a remarkable story, but you know that was only the first part of the story. As he got on the plane that night, and this is what I read years later, he told his dad and some friends that were with him as they were flying back to the hospital that his goal was to one day stand out on that Superdome floor and receive the state championship trophy only this time as a player. And, you know, what do you say to a young man who has cancer when the diagnosis is not very good? You smile, you pat him reassuringly on the back, and you let him go back to the hospital. That's what you do. And that's what they did. You see, he had all kinds of obstacles to overcome that were immense by anybody's imagination. First of which, they weren't even sure he's going to keep his leg. They had been thinking about amputating it. On top of that, he was undergoing all this chemotherapy that was going to deplete his body and it would take years, if he was lucky, to go into remission and then back to some kind of health that he could play football. Being a junior, if it would take at least two years, which in fact it did, he would then be graduated from high school and wouldn't be able to play anyway. He would have to be granted some unusual ruling by the Louisiana High School Athletic Association in order to play. And then just the fight back would be enough of an obstacle in and of itself. Not to mention the fact that all his teammates will have been graduated. And who could predict that this small high school, one of the smallest in the state in 4A, would be able to play for the state championship two years later? And so Michael battled those odds. He did go into remission. He didn't lose his leg. 
He got a special ruling from the Louisiana High School Association in his senior year. In mid-year, he began to play again for Ruston High, although Ruston didn't have a very good team. In fact, they finished third in their district. And uh, they were granted, though, a wild card berth for the playoffs. And the coach, kind of resigning to the fact that they wouldn't go very far, just scrapped the starting backfield and put three sophomores back there to try to uh, march through these playoffs. Now, you can imagine that was more of a resignation than anything else. And yet, on December the 10th, 1988, and I've kept this kind of as a keepsake because it reminds me of motivation and comebacks when I feel down. I have this picture, and this picture is from 1988 of Michael Parker standing on the Superdome floor, number 40, in his uniform, and he's receiving the state championship trophy. Wow. Now that's a comeback. Not just fulfilling his dreams, but you know what that was? That's a completion of a miracle. And we all get excited about that, but let me tell you this morning, that pales. <laughs> that pales in comparison to the miracle that we're going to witness here in Luke chapter 24, which is the greatest comeback of all time. It's the fall and rise of Jesus Christ. Look at verse or chapter 23, verse 44. It says, And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. I just want you to notice again, some of you, how nature always cooperates with spiritual truth. It wasn't by accident that it was dark, and though it was midday, the sun was obscured. The sun is saluting the darkness of this hour. Verse 46, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And as he did so, there were thousands of people all over Palestine, not the least of which were eleven men now, who lost heart. Their hearts were darkened. It was like a fog settling in over this little seed that had been planted in their hearts and had been watered by Jesus through his earthly life, that there is in fact a reality past the grave. They were crushed. They were forsaken. But what a difference a day makes. Look at chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. He has risen. And I want to picture that moment for you. You see, here are these women, and they go into this tomb, and I'm sure when they notice the stone being rolled away, just as a parent waiting to see if their son or daughter is going to win the prize, they felt the fog beginning to lift on that little seed that had been planted there that says there is an eternity. Now, that wasn't a conscious thought, but it was probably a feeling as they walked into the tomb. And then they see these dazzling men there, and as they bow their head before they can even consciously come to the conclusion on their own. These men are giving them in a succinct statement. They say, He is not here. He has risen. And it's still confusing, but it's starting to come together. And then you run outside the tomb 
Well, it was dark when you got there. They run outside and like the sun being in its appropriate place. Notice verse 1. The day is now dawning. And with the sunrise, with the new light of the new day, they understand it's a new age. Not a futility, but of life everlasting. And so there they are in this golden moment, the rising sun, the dawning day, the budding trees, the flowers, the empty tomb, and the smell of new life, and their heart and nature is crying out, resurrection! Although this time, not as past generations, in vagueness. No, this bursting heart is now delirious because it realizes what was once a vague sense of eternity within is now for real. And the heart is going, yes. You know, this last year my son played basketball. And like any parent, I sat over there twisting the program and biting my nails, wanting him to do good. And occasionally, he would hit a shot. And when he would, he would go, yes. You know? Some of you remember that glorious moment during the 70s when our national morale was probably at an all-time low, at least in my lifetime. We didn't feel good about being Americans. We felt dirty. We felt like we had exploited others. And people were telling us what a fool we had made out of ourselves in the Vietnam War. And yet there were a little group of Americans who kind of rallied us around the flag. You remember a group of amateur hockey skaters went out on a skating rink to take on a veteran, well-disciplined, and professional, I might add, Soviet hockey team. Do you remember that? I was in Tucson, Arizona at the time. And I remember doing cartwheels, flipping over the sofa, back and forth, as this game went on. It was like a miracle unfolding before my eyes and the crowd shouting, USA, USA. And then it got down to the last few seconds with us ahead, four to three, and an American takes the puck. And do you remember Al Michaels' words? They're almost immortal now. Do you believe in miracles? And the last tick went off and he went, yes! <laughs> I want you to know that when those women walked outside that tomb and felt the first rays of the sun and saw the new light around them, they went, yes! Do you believe in miracles? Really? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that there is more to this life than just time and matter and chance all colliding together? Do you believe that there is a, a place for you after the grave? If you don't, or if you're still vague about that, I want to offer to you this morning one who stands for investigation. One who stands out in history above all the rest who claimed that He was the resurrection and the life. He said it. And He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. If that's true of you, if that's something that you're contemplating, I want you to know it will make an incredible difference or should in your life. There is another world and another life and it's being moved together by Jesus Christ Himself. This is what Easter is all about. It's not something just to be proved, though it has plenty of evidences. And I offered a few of those to you, 
But it is so worth your investigation not to sit here and check in occasionally and think, well, I hope I live as if it's some vague thing that may or may not happen and I'll give acknowledgement to it. It wasn't meant to be that way. It was meant to radically rearrange your life because Jesus Christ came and He came to change you, to make you different, to give you a comeback. It's something also to be felt and that's what I've Hopefully, I've at least given you a little taste of here this morning. It's a sense of ecstasy. It's to be felt and experienced and celebrated and cherished. Do you believe in miracles? Boy, I do. And to death and taxes, what Jesus Christ did on April the 15th for us again today is He declares that there is another certainty just as sure as those two. And that is that there is life after death for those who place their faith radically in Him. Remember, that's what He said to these same women, though months earlier, as He confronted Martha, He said, over Lazarus' death, Martha, do you believe in the resurrection? And she said, oh, you know, Lord, I believe that in the coming day there will be a resurrection. And you know what Jesus said by just the look on His face? That's not good enough, Martha that there's going to be some resurrection, you'll be pulled into that whether you want to or not. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? That's the question I would ask you today. In your heart, does this account, now listen, does this account of the resurrection, is it something that you would bind up at the end of the day and place it on a bookshelf between Snow White and the little mermaid? Or is this account of the resurrection that I am presenting to you this morning, is it something that you would put proudly up on another shelf next to Julius Caesar and the life of Abraham Lincoln? Where you place this book in your heart will be the difference in your life. We are not saved by Jesus' good moral teachings. We are not even saved by His crucifixion. His death for us, as important as it is, had He still been in the grave, we would have always wondered, was it good enough? See, He said, I'm going to die for you, and I'll be able to bring life to you. But if He stayed in the grave like Confucius, or like Mohammed, or like Buddha, or like all the rest of the religious teachers who ever lived, how could you know for sure? When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, God documented for us once and for all that this life was authentic. And He offers it to you today. And what I would ask you is before the last seconds of your life tick away, do you believe in miracles? In 1899, D.L. Moody said, Someday you will read in the papers, he was a great teacher, that Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. <laughs> Isn't that great? Don't believe a word of it. For at that moment, I shall be more alive than I am right now. Are you here today with that kind of confidence? In your own death? Facing the sheer terror of it, if you would just simply contemplate it? If not, then let me offer to you 
the incomparable, historical Jesus Christ. Let me offer him to you to consider. The one who alone, no other has ever claimed it, and no other has ever done it, who conquered death. Maybe you're here today and you're in need of a personal comeback. You've done it your way, and now you're living in the ruins of that. And there's pain in your life. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your personal life. Maybe it's in your employment. Maybe it's in the circumstances that have been going on these last few months. You're in the rubble of it, and it doesn't look like because the obstacles are so high that you could ever overcome those things. If you're feeling that here today, then let me offer to you the incomparable, historical Jesus Christ, the one who said that He has the power to make all things new. Those are not words of a dead man because a dead man could do nothing for you today. Those are the words of a risen Savior. Maybe you're here today and you're in need of forgiveness. Many people are seeking forgiveness in different ways, being the sophisticated 20th century people that we are. We go and we meet with counselor after counselor after counselor, trying to get them to help us understand why we did what we did so we don't have to ask forgiveness for it. So they can explain it in other naturalistic ways and then we can blame it on everybody else when the God of heaven is not going to accept that and neither is your conscience that's going to sear you to the day you die. If you're living in the pain of the past, if you have problems in the conscience that are tormenting you that you can't get away from, then I offer to you the incomparable historical Jesus Christ who throughout His life said over and over again, I can forgive your sin. I can take it away. I can relieve you of that pain and that burden just like that. But you have to place your faith in me. You see, He was the only one who could do that. And He was the only one who paid that penalty and then rose again from the dead to show that God accepted that payment as real. But here's what you must do. You must believe in Him as a historical person. You must receive into your, Him into your heart as Lord and as God. Remember Thomas, the doubting Thomas, who wouldn't believe until he saw the wounds? And then he fell down and he wept, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you who believe because you see, but more blessed are those who believe and yet do not see. Would you like to be one of those here this morning? Then you must believe that He is real. You must believe that He is Lord and God, and you must embrace Him, not as one as a good teacher, but as God alive from the dead. And if you do that for your own life, if you make such a bold statement of faith, such a, such a radical reordering of stepping out to embrace the living God, then I think that He will place within your heart not just some vague sense of eternity that you're always wondering, what's going to happen after I die? But He will complete your hum humanity by stamping over your heart the word, yes. Let's pray together. And Father, I am so thankful that You have done that for me how I give you praise this morning, and how I offer the Lord Jesus to everyone here, old and new, 
And I pray that if they are hurting or if they are sensing that this is a reality that we Christians worship every year, I pray that they would lay down their skepticism and say, Lord Jesus, since you are alive, I want you into my life to forgive me of the sins that I have committed. I need that cleansing. And I want you to live with me and teach me the way of life. And I thank you, Lord, that you're alive and that you can hear that prayer and that you can come into my life and give me that sense. And I pray that you would do that even at this moment. And Lord, how I'm thankful that that kind of prayer you can answer. And Lord, I thank you for this day, a day of immense hope. And let me confess publicly in front of all these people that I believe with all my heart in the historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I look forward, Father, with great anticipation to that day in eternity after having believed this miracle that one day I will become one. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We give you praise this Easter morn. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.